Good morning, let's pray. Lord, it's a privilege to worship you this morning. We get to open our Bibles and see uh, your greatness. We get to respond in song and see your greatness. We get to look around and see different people being used in different ways, and we see your greatness. We wake up this morning with a borrowed breath and with mercies that are new, and we see your greatness. Lord, I pray that we would not be here this morning going through the Sunday morning motions of being Christian-y church people. I pray that we would be here this morning as worshipers who want to know more about you, worshipers who are eager to learn more about our God, and not just to learn things for the sake of having knowledge, but so that we would truly know you, to know who it is that is in our midst, to know who it is that not only equips us, but sustains us and gives us what we need to persevere and endure, to know who we are living for, whose glory we are putting on display, making sure that we're doing it the right way. Lord, it's a privilege that we get to gather here. I pray that every one of us would see it as so. Lord, I pray for uh, First Baptist Greenville this morning. I pray for Terry Blankenship, for his family. I pray that they're worshiping every day, not just Sunday. I pray that they are... Um, gathering for corporate worship this morning, eager for those same things, I pray that you are encouraging them and leading them, and I pray that they are seeking your face. I pray for Clint as he is over there uh, helping to lead worship this morning. I pray that he would lead in spirit and in truth, humbly being poured out as a vessel of mercy as you see fit, Lord. Lord I pray that you would engage our hearts and our minds this morning. Spend some time in Exodus here for the third week. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Exodus 31, please. I'm going to read aloud Exodus 31, verses 1 through 11. And then I'm going to read Exodus 36, verses 1 through 7. Have this morning is in Exodus 31. We see the beginning of a story. We see God moving that something happens. And in Exodus 36, we see that actual thing happening. And so we'll begin in Exodus 31, chapters 1 through 11. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones, for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahishachah, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. And listen to all that's going to be made by these guys that God has mentioned. For all the kids in here, try to picture it in your head, all these things in this list that are to be made by God's people. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, 
and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons, for their service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So we see that God has a lot for his people to do in preparation for his presence. God is going to show up and be present with his people, and they're going to worship him, and he's going to tell them things that are important. If you go over to Exodus 36, you see the second part of this. Verse 1, Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab <clears throat> and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill and everyone in whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task in the sanctuary came, each from the task he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. This may have not been proclaimed since then, but the word was proclaimed, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. In these last two weeks, we've covered 16 chapters of Exodus. If you haven't been able to hear those, I want you all to know that online we have all of our messages. We have, you can stream them, you can download them, you can podcast them. You go to crosspointfellowship.us and you can use that not just as a tool to catch up, but even as a tool to, to review. I'm not going to try to cover those 16 chapters here in a few minutes at the beginning of the sermon. Um, but the main point is this, God's really good. That's the main point that we've seen. God is really good. We've seen it in his provision of manna. We've seen it in his provision of rest for his people. And today we're going to see God's goodness in his provision of people. This week we're moving on from chapter 16 and we're going to move towards chapters 31 and 36 particularly. Israel moves by stages. Remember, they came from Elam where there were the springs of water and the palm trees and they came to the wilderness of Sin, which is where they received the manna, this gift of rest. God tested them. They're moving on from the wilderness of Sin to Rephidim. They have had their first war and they prevail against the Malachites because God made them so they were able to beat the Malachites in war. Moses spent some time catching up with Jethro. Yes, his father-in-law's name was Jethro. And they moved towards Sinai, arriving at the base of Mount Sinai to set up camp seven weeks into the Exodus. So remember, this is our story. We're not just acting like it's personal, it is personal. So if this is our story, we have moved on seven weeks ago. We began a journey out of Egypt, led by Moses and Aaron. And today, we're finding ourselves at the base of Mount Sinai seven weeks later. God goes to great lengths to make his presence known at Mount Sinai. He shakes the ground, there's lightning and thunder and fire, and you actually hear his voice. And God makes very clear his instructions for how he wants his people to live. He's saying, you're my people, I've redeemed you for my glory, this is how you will live. 
And after making some clear instructions about laws and rules and order, God moves on concerning issues of the tabernacle and the sanctuary because that's where God will in fact dwell with his people. So that's a lot of information covering a few chapters. But these following chapters, as God talks about the sanctuary and the tabernacle, where he will dwell with his people, he includes a lot of details, a lot of details of exactly what he expects of his people. We will get to the details in a moment, but first I want us to understand that the details are very important because this place, this tabernacle, is not just symbolic of God dwelling with his people. It's not just representative of what it would be like if God were to dwell with his people. This is God dwelling with his people. So the details he includes are not just a suggestion for how we might live. We have to see the importance of that is not just symbolic. So you can picture all the Israelites getting to work on the tabernacle in the sanctuary, doing really, really hard and detailed work. And though our Israelite brethren are working hard, there's no time where they can just make changes on the fly as they see fit. There's no Israelite workman who can say, you know, God's not on the job site. He doesn't know what this is like. We will make changes as we need because he, what he wrote was just on paper. We're going to do this as we see fit. There's no time where they have any license to make changes as they see fit. They will work hard and stay focused if indeed they believe that God commands nothing without a purpose. When we read through our Bibles, we will read things that make a lot of sense. We will read other things that make very little sense to us. But on those things that make little sense, we don't say, well, I just don't get it. I'm I'm not doing that. We, We can't make those calls on the fly because we have to understand as a people, whatever he says in his breathed out word, which is profitable for us in living, we know that he commands every bit of it with a purpose. And he is God, so sometimes his purposes aren't immediately clear to us. But we know that he commands nothing without a purpose. And that brings us to our text this morning. God has made his expectations and his plans very clear to his people. So the question remains, who will do this great work? Who will build this great tabernacle where the Lord will dwell with his people? Israel has spent the last few decades doing slave labor in Egypt. Artistry and specialized training are not exactly everyday occurrences for Israel in their time in Egypt. In short, God has included details about hammering out gold in the shape of winged cherubim and an ark of the covenant to be built to specific dimensions and rings of gold specifically placed to hold the curtains that are made just the way God said by acacia poles meticulously overlaid with pure gold, curtains and priestly garments sewn from costly yarns and inlaid with precious jewels. That's the work that's to be done. Yet Israel at this point is made up of a bunch of generations who have spent most of their time making bricks. Can you imagine taking an old mason? It's all he's done his whole life. He's got calloused hands, not even very good at talking with people because he just works with the bricks. Saying, could you sew this curtain out of these yarns and then lay it with these, with these jewels just like God said? It seems almost silly to expect that the people would be able to do this. So who will do this great work? Look at verses one through five in chapter 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for every setting, and in carving wood to work 
in every craft. It is a mind-blowing thing to consider the secret influences of God. What is God planning right now? What is he orchestrating? Who is God raising up? Because here we see that God had a plan three generations out on who was going to do what for his glory as members of his people. It should blow your mind when you begin to think, man, God's really doing a lot more than, than we could ever realize. He's always doing more than we can see. His ways are infinitely higher than our ways, and he knows our deepest needs before we voice them. We see that time and time again in Scripture. The secret influences of our sovereign God should be something we treasure. And here we're introduced to Bezalel and Aholiab. Now, before we talk too much about them, adults and kids alike, I want you to take everything that you've ever learned about Bezalel and Aholiab. Just consider it. Consider how Bezalel and Aholiab have shaped the way you even live today. Those many devotions that you had concerning the lives of Bezalel and the lives of Aholiab. Just, just take all that in before we consider them. These two guys, Bezalel and Aholiab, were quite possibly two of the most divinely inspired artists that our world has ever seen. These two guys. And it is likely that most of us don't even know their names. Isn't that the first rule of any artist to get your name out there? Did they get something backwards here? Here we encounter the ones who built the place that God actually dwelled with his people on earth. These guys. We're encountering Bezalel and Aholiab who built the Ark of the Covenant, one of the most sought after treasures the earth has ever seen. And the thing we see is an aim to first and foremost make famous the name of God, not themselves. We do not know their names because their names are less important, though they do very good work. It doesn't matter if you're a musician, a painter, an office manager, or a janitor. If you are a follower of Christ, your aim is always, always, always to put his glory on display, not your own. You're not allowed to pursue your own glory and just sometimes talk about God because you're a Christian. You can't be spent in the direction of your own glory. And sometimes I'll talk about the Lord. I'm not ashamed of that. No, you live for his glory, everything you do. It's not good for you to work somewhere and five years into that job, someone says, oh, I didn't know you were a Christian. The goal is not to keep that a secret. No matter what your human resource department might say, it's really hard to be secretly bright. Think of that. Have you ever seen those big old uh, lights that, that show you where the movies play or whatever? The, they sit in the parking lot and they swivel and you see it going across the sky. Could you imagine trying to hide one of those, like with it on? Like you can't just throw a blanket over it. It's hard to be secretly bright. We're called to be bright in darkness. It's hard to be secretly aromatic. The flip side of that coin is to make sure you're not the overly annoying spiritual guy at the office. Just making copies for the glory of the Lord over here. You don't want to be that guy either. There's a balance that we find when we consider what God says. When we forsake God's glory for our own fame and our own recognition, when we forsake his glory for our own fame and our own recognition, look at me, we soon find disarray. I was thinking about the tabernacle being built, and it's not likely that you would find a sign outside of the tabernacle that said, Bezalel and Aholiab construction. 
Call us for all your tabernacle needs. Now, I'm not making a sweeping statement against signage or advertising or business cards or websites, but I do believe that the scriptures are making a specific point that your life and your work and your achievements and your accolades should never be more about you than they are about God. If indeed you are one of his very blessed and very distinct children, it's supposed to be different. We find our reason for this in verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, we see him calling Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, and filling him with the spirit of God with ability, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship. Those who do any truly God-glorifying work are called and appointed by God with God-given abilities. What that means is we don't have some abilities that are from God and some that we've just figured out along the way. God's spirit is the source of ability, intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship, and artistry. God never calls us to do that which he does not enable us to do. So if we've been enabled to do something, it's because he was the one who made us able. If not for him, we would not have the ability to put together a cognitive and cohesive thought, much less produce something of artistic respectability. He does way more than we regularly give him credit for. It's not just something we say. He really is the source of all good things, including abilities and gifts. And I find that we'll be even more eager to give of our resources and gifts if we see them as having come from God and actually still belonging to God. He doesn't just give them up and say, all right, good luck. Hope they do what they're supposed to do. They still belong to the Lord. And we'll be more eager to give and use those gifts, to spend and be spent gladly if we see those as coming from the Lord, not from within, and still belonging to the Lord. God has paid attention to all of the details before you pay attention to any of the details. All of them. God pays attention to all of the details before we pay attention to any of the details. What that means is that consider your parenting. If you're thinking, you know what? I should, if you're sitting down thinking about it, I should probably watch my tone with my children because I know that scripture says a particular kind of tone can provoke them rather than uh, be a peacemaker as a parent and maybe I should work on that. As you're considering those details, God's considered all of the details before you sat to consider those. When you're praying to the Lord, you're not reminding him of what needs to be done. He knows in your marriages, if, if Lord, I, I think that maybe, maybe I should be more servant-hearted and patient as opposed to short, and you're praying through those details, God's paid attention to all of them before you have paid attention to any of them. Even in your work, you may be sitting down to draft up some plan or a spreadsheet or something, and all those details, it's not like God doesn't care about those details. He pays attention to all the details before we pay attention to any of them. We see that particularly in these verses. We observe God says, I want to make it so that hers son, H-U-R's son, Yuri, will have a son named Bezalel. You see him making plans generations out. Consider that as parents and children. Consider you may be sitting here being a part of a work in a generation that you have not met that has not yet been born. Consider that God may have brought you to the point where you are because of work that's been done in previous generations. Don't be selfish and arrogant. I want to make it so that Uri has a son named Bezalel. And I want Bezalel 
to be able to pay attention to the details in a way that's not common. I want him to be specifically gifted. You can hear God saying, I, I want, I'm going to give him a steady hand to be able to cut and set these stones, just like I said. Again, God's not aloof to a single detail. Look at verse 6. He says, And behold, I have also appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. And then we see that long list of all the things that are going to be made for the tabernacle. This is often how God works. He called Adam and Eve. He called Moses and Aaron. And now he calls Bezalel and Aholiab. There's a certain accountability and attention to detail that does not exist to this degree when there's only one person with their eyes on something. I think this is why the church is largely called to everybody's doing stuff, not just a few people. Everybody is serving, and as everybody is serving, they're led by a plurality of leadership. It just seems better by God's design that the church is not made up of a bunch of lone rangers out on the end of a limb working by themselves. And I have given all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. It's not the norm that God would appoint leadership with no one to lead. And it's not usual that your gifts would end with you. We could ask the question, who is your Aholiab? Or to make it more specific, who are the able people that you are investing in and growing with? This is very important in the body of believers. I love that all the children are in here today. It's poetic. It's very important that we are looking for those who can walk with us in our journey. It's very important that you have someone walking with you in your journey for the glory of God. It's a very important factor in the body of believers, yet it's counterintuitive and countercultural in a lot of ways. Many times you will find that if a man or woman is really good at something, they'll keep the secrets to themselves. Because if everyone else knows how to do what they know how to do, that makes them more dispensable, i.e. less valuable. Like the person in the office who has the one key to get into the one room and won't let you have it because that's their job. If there were multiple keys, they would be dispensable. But here we see that when it comes to the issue of God's, God's glory being put on display as he commands... It's better to let others in on the process. If you want to be the only great Bible study leader or the only good small group shepherd, then you have lost sight of your created purpose, namely putting God's glory on display. The reason you've lost sight of that is because you're too busy putting your own glory on display. But if you're good at what you do and you're eager to raise up others in a like manner, then you get it. If you want to be parent of the year without giving any thought to the needs of other parents, there's a problem there. But if you want to reach out and help in any way you possibly can, to share even your faults or the failures that you've had so that others don't have to fall in the same hole, you get it. That's good. We should always have a view towards raising up future generations to work hard and to be good at their skill. Look at the kids sitting next to you. They're gonna do something someday. You hope they're not gonna just stay home for forever. You're going to have a job. You're going to have a work ethic. 
And they may say, I, I serve the Lord, but are, are we raising them up to do that? Are we raising them up to, to work hard and to be an example, to, to do it in their schoolwork now, to do it with their siblings now if they're not in school? There has to be a view towards future generations to work hard and be good at their skill, whatever it may be. Why? Because the Lord is filling the earth with image bearers. His aim is that you rightly reflect his character and put his glory on display in your framing, in your engineering, in your photographing, in your parenting, in your landscaping, in your wrench turning, in your teaching, in your writing, in everything. And that you would always have a focus that is outward and then upward, not just inward. What I mean by that is that the Lord has designed us according to these verses in such a way that our focus isn't just inward where, you know what, God's given me these gifts and abilities and I'll use them as as I see fit just quietly and and I don't want anyone to really know and this is just my little thing. As a member of the body, the focus is really more outward and upward. You're looking for others who you can walk with. You're looking to be discipled and to disciple And then it's not just outward, that begins to take a view that's upward, where you're doing that shoulder to shoulder with others as an act of worship for the glory of the Lord. Look at verses 12 through 14. I didn't read these earlier, but it's interesting to note. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me throughout your generations. The generations are included in the work. The generations are included in the rest. That you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. That's important because sometimes when I want my Sabbath rest, I just want to have it me. Your kids need the rest too. Don't get them out mowing the yard and stuff while you're resting. (laughs) Maybe sometimes, not all the time. Um, That you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Verses 12 through 14 immediately remind God's people that his command is to rest. You can picture God giving this pep talk. I mean, what if you heard God, his voice say, you're going to do this. This guy's going to do this, and this guy's going to do this, and you're going to do it in this manner, and you're going to pay attention to these details. You can picture people like, yeah, like a locker room, just slowly growing in excitement. Let's go. Let's do this. And you can see him very passionately getting to work and very quickly disregarding the equally important call to rest. And God reels them in before they have a chance to take out too much line. And he says, this is the tabernacle where I will dwell with my people. But if in the building of this tabernacle, if you do not rest regularly as I have commanded, you will be cut off from my people. There's not a good return there. This is where I'll dwell with my people. If you don't rest, you won't be my people. It should be sobering. It's a great reminder in the midst of this amazing God's putting his people to work for his glory to make sure not to lose sight of the the whole picture here. Get two months down the road and burned out and don't want to build anymore. Don't want to do anything else with this dumb tabernacle. That's not good. Remember, disobedience is never as sweet as obedience. Now, the context here is important. I want to bring you all into a little more context in Exodus. Moses has been receiving all of these insights. Everything we've read thus far, Moses has heard from God on top of Mount Sinai while the rest of God's people are at the base of Mount Sinai. 
That's the context here. So all these things that we're hearing about haven't happened yet. Nothing's been built. A hammer has not been picked up. Bezalel and Holiab are still in the dark. Nothing's happened yet. Except that God is making clear to his leadership what's, gonna, what's going to happen. Moses has been receiving all these insights about the tabernacle, the law, the people on top of Mount Sinai. And it's now Moses' responsibility to go and tell the people all that God has said. And he goes back down the mountain to an absolute mess. Look at chapter 32, verses 1 through 4. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, and the people gathered themselves up to Aaron and said to him, Up, up. Can't you just hear that? You ever been in a position of leadership or trying to do something? Someone come, Up, work, do this now. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What a bummer to come down to. What a bummer. Your quiet time may end with news of something bad happening. You may have a wonderful prayer time in the morning and then you get a phone call that someone you know has fallen headlong into sin. That doesn't mean God's not active. I mean, you could imagine Moses coming down the mountain and saying, oh man, I just had this amazing talk with God. I can't wait to tell the people I'm coming down and looking, seeing him dancing around a calf, a golden calf. God just brought them out of Egypt. He's shown them unbelievable miracles. Their bellies are full because of his provision only. And they have taken this picture of Mount Sinai and the shaking and the, the thunder and the Lord's voice and the amazing things that are going on and they've said that's just too much. That, that weirds me out. So they make a timid little golden calf so that if, if the golden calf is looking at them and it weirds them out, they can just turn it around. If the golden calf makes them uncomfortable, they can put it in the drawer. It's very timid, God. And then they give the golden calf credit for, being brought, for them being brought out of Egypt. What would you have done if you were Moses? Would you walk down and, and go right back up that mountain and tell God that he must be crazy? God, you're out of your mind. Those people are nuts. Or would you trust him? We have to be sober-minded as we move forward in our journey of faith. There are many times that you will personally maybe be in a great season, you'll have a good quiet time or devotional, you'll have a wonderful prayer time, you'll have a great lunch, and it will be immediately rudely interrupted by reality of sin. But that doesn't mean give up. It means persevere and trust the Lord. What Moses descends into is he comes back down the mountain, goes far beyond bad decisions. Israel has really given way to full-on idolatry at this point. Moses is mad. 
These 10 commandments that you think, if there's anything on the planet we don't want to break, let's not break these. Wham! Throws them down, smashes them. He's mad. God indicates even worse that he says, you know what? Y'all are going to have to move on without me. Dancing around a golden calf, giving that calf credit for uh, taking you out of Egypt, you can take your calf and you can go. That's all you need. Thankfully, chapter 33 tells us this is disastrous news. It uses the word disastrous, very good word. Why is this disastrous news that God's saying, y'all are going to have to move on without me? Moses boldly says as much when he says, God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. What is Moses saying? Moses is saying, what's the point in moving forward if we're doing so without God? That's a wonderful question we should always ask ourselves as a church. You should ask it as families, and as families make up this church, we should ask it as a church, as individuals, we should ask it. If we're going to move forward without God, what's the point moving forward? Another way of saying that is godless pursuits are worthless. Godless pursuits have no worth because worth is found in God. And God shows really, really great mercy at this point. God says to his people, you know what? You do deserve something far worse, but mercy is when we do not receive that which we deserve. I mean, what do you think Israel deserves here? They made a mockery of God. They made a mockery of his leadership, and they worshiped a golden calf like a bunch of hooligans after God had this amazing plan to dwell with them. What do you think they deserve? Well, they certainly didn't get what they deserved. They got mercy. And then he gives Moses some new tablets. He says, it's okay you broke the first ones. I'm God. Here you go. He renews his covenant. And he actually makes Moses' face to shine, which completely weirds out all of Israel. Kids, what would you do if mommy and daddy came out of a quiet time and their faces were shining? Wouldn't that weird y'all out? Wouldn't that be crazy? The presence of God with Moses was so real that when he came down, his face was shiny, glowing. And finally, in chapter 36, all of this spoken of work actually becomes a physical work. Look at chapter, we'll start in 3530 and read through 36.2. Look at 35, chapter 30. Then we'll read to 36.2. All of this work that's been spoken of, talked about, planned by God will now become something that's happening by the hands of God's people as they are vessels of mercy poured out as God sees fit. 35 verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, and tell me if this sounds familiar to you because this is now Moses talking to the people. See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. It should sound familiar. It's verbatim what God said to Moses. This is why it's important that we each know our Bibles. Because if you just take what you've been told and you just kind of paraphrase it and tell it someone else, and they kind of paraphrase it and tell it someone else, and then those people have kids, and they just kind of paraphrase it and tell it to their kids, you don't have the same thing. You have a version of it, maybe. Here, he is very specific about God's details that God has shared because God doesn't share details just to, be, just to hear his own voice. They're very important. 
We all need to know God's word so that we can do that. What he's doing here is a really good example. And look at verse 34. And he has inspired him to teach. He's not just a a workhorse. He's inspired him to teach. Both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer. Can you imagine if that was your, your resume? I can build stone buildings and embroider a nice garment in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded, not some of it. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord has put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to do the work. Bezalel and Aholiab are let in on the plan. That's good. And they're informed with everybody else that they not only have particular skills, but God has also inspired them to teach. They haven't built anything. They haven't taught anything. Yet they're hearing, oh, okay, I'm gifted to do that and teach that. Interesting. So they're not just inspired to do work. God also inspired them to teach so that others may know. It's a generational view here. And God does something else here. He he stirs both the heart and the mind. God stirs both the heart and the mind, ensuring that the work is neither only heartless labor or only theological concept. What I mean is this. In stirring both the heart and the mind, God makes it so that his children carry out his plans as an act of worship. I don't want y'all to just be builders. You're worshipers. I don't want you to just be... uh, people who make priestly garments, your worshipers. I don't want you to just be the person who brings this to this person. You're a worshiper. And God stirs their hearts and their minds. His plans are it's an act of worship with both the heart and the mind engaged in the work that God has set them about. By design, we're to be thoughtful, thorough, specific, and passionate It's not enough to be very organized and without passion. It's not enough for you to say, okay, children, we will wake at 7.30 on Sunday morning. We will have our clothes laid out. We will have the shoes that go with those clothes. We will be in the car at exactly 9.30 a.m. We will stop and get donuts. Each of you gets one donut. We will show up for worship five minutes early. We will sit in the fourth pew, three seats down. We will sit and we will worship with no passion. There's a lot of order there, a lot of, that's good. You know what your, your Sunday morning's gonna look like, but what about the worship part? It's not enough to be very organized and without passion. It's also not enough to be passionate without order. That's easy too. Oh, we'll get there when we get there. <laughs> I don't care what, y'all wear whatever. Wear what you wore three days ago. Wear what you wore the last two days, doesn't matter. I don't know where my Bible is. It doesn't, I love Jesus. Where my Bible is, it doesn't matter. I just love Jesus. God stirs both the heart and the mind. It's not simply either. It's not simply a matter of man-centered craftsmanship. God's not saying, I'm going to equip you guys to build something that's just, everyone's going to think you're awesome. It's not a matter of man-centered craftsmanship. It is the glory of God that is being displayed through the craftsmanship. 
See this. This is very important. God is saying, by my design, a thing will happen where when people see this tabernacle and they know that my presence is there and they see the curtains and they see the little golden rings and they see the bronze bowl that washes the hands and that's bronze because it's not in the most holy place where everything else is gold. And when I see the altar and the blood and the sacrifices and the priests with their priestly garments and the, the purple and the, the yarn and then the, the, gold, the, uh, the stones right here that represent my people, when, they, when people see all that, it's gonna, that craftsmanship is going to reflect something of my glory. If you, if God's saying if you, if you move forward according to my design and you're doing things the way I say them, even if it doesn't make sense to you, people will look at you and they will see something of me, which is most important. You don't just want them to join your church because they think it's cool. You want to be a part of a people because You see something of their God, and you're getting to know their God, and you're familiarizing yourself with their God. This whole tabernacle was about God being present with his people. It's not about man-centered craftsmanship. This keeps us from being sloppy in the things we do. It's about working hard and being diligent so that in that craftsmanship, in that artistry, in that design, in that intelligence, in that knowledge, people can marvel at God, not you. It's the glory of God that's being displayed through the craftsmanship. I I do believe that this realization will make us better songwriters, better preachers, better engineers, better parents, better nursery workers, you name it. If that's our approach, it'll make us better at it for the glory of God, aiming to display God's glory and our God-given gifts and our God-given abilities as an act of worship for the glory of God. Look at chapter 36, verses 3 through 7. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. So that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Love this. An abundance of resources will rarely result in less work. You may think that. Man, if I just had more resources, I wouldn't have to work so hard. Not true. This is a great picture. An abundance of resources does not mean less work. Here we see that though there was an abundance of resources, there was still a lot of work required. As Crosspoint grows, as God sees fit, the result will not be less work. It'll be more. And guess who gets to do it? Not the staff, necessarily. The people. If your family grows as God sees fit, both spiritually, monetarily, numerically, the result will not be less work. It will be more. Some sit here this morning attesting to that. This is all the more reason for us to stick to God's plans, to do it the way he says, and not shelve his plans for something that we see is more fitting to our particular situation. In these verses, we see that a work should not even begin without us understanding God's desire. The goal is not to get to the point of not having to work so hard. The goal is to work hard as long as we have a borrowed breath for the glory of God and rightly resting according to the pattern that he has set for us as our creator. We can also observe that the workers are supposed to be good stewards. 
Did you hear how they would, every single person who was doing work came back to Moses and said, hey, we got plenty. This, we got more than enough. Have you ever had anyone do work on your house and not ask for more money? Have you ever hired someone to fix your sink? And, oh, no, 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 stop, I got plenty, we're good. That's not normal. The workers have to be good stewards, especially when it comes to kingdom work done by the people of God. I think this comes from seeing yourself as a member of a people, not just a hired gun. It takes a community-minded, selfless person to deny more resources. It takes a God-given ability for these workers to look at the people whom they are a part of and say, I know this sounds crazy, but we have everything we need to do the work that God has commanded. God will no doubt call us to other endeavors in the future, so hold on to your resources that, may, that we may be ready for the work. We are always get, we pass the plate every week for a reason. We are always giving sacrificially and consistently until Jesus returns kingdom work will never cease until he returns. But there are some seasons where God calls us to build something or to plant something or to fund something that takes more resources. For us, we got a big honking 6,000 square foot example of that right out here. When we finish that building, we're not going to keep asking for more building resources long after it's done. What we're going to do is rejoice Thank God for his abundant provision and then move on. It's not the thing, it's a thing for a season. But when that's done, we're going to rejoice, thank God for his provision, and we're going to move on. Our goal is not to dishonestly pad our accounts. It's to spend and be spent gladly on souls as we see God calling us. All the while being good stewards of God's resources is an act of worship. Notice also that all the things needed for the work of ministry came from the body. You didn't hear God saying, okay, over here in a village, you're going to have to take 30 kilometers this way, take a right at the fence post, and down here, there's going to be a guy who's really good at hammering metals. Get that guy. Oh, over here, there's some resources over here. That, that, no, what was needed for the work came from the body. What was needed for the work came from the body. Whether it was resources or physical labor, it was provided via members of God's people Oftentimes, a church will decide they need to hire someone to fulfill a needed role in ministry of their church, and they will do so without giving a single thought to the reality that God may well have that person in the body. There are so many times where churches say, we need a new whatever minister, and they put the committee together, and the personnel committee goes, starts listening to tapes and CDs and podcasts and collecting resumes to go and find who that might be, and very rarely, it's thought given, they may be in the body. Too often churches will start a building campaign and begin by praying for that random millionaire widow in the community who wants to fund the project, while the resources that are needed are likely right here in the body of believers. God's really good. I want to take a moment to encourage y'all. I've gotten to see one of the joys of being in full-time ministry is I get a front row seat to seeing answered prayers, to seeing God's provision, to seeing people moved by God in a particular way, and I get to just see it happen all day. Every day, not all day, a lot of days, those good things are amazing, and there's something to marvel at. And I want to encourage this body. That whole building out there is completely paid for as it stands because the resources came from this body. Good job. Most of our body is involved in small groups. 
so that they can walk in the preached word and hold each other accountable. Good job. There's resources needed there to hold each other accountable and walk. Good job. We have more workers right now and teachers for our children than we've ever had. Now, I'm not saying take the next 10 Sundays off. Don't hear that. But good job. The resources that we need for the work of ministry are coming from within the body. This week, we'll start electrical, AC, and heat in that building because the resources have come from the body. Good job for God's glory. It's also interesting that most, I love this part. It's also interesting that most, if not all, of the tabernacle was built with Egyptian gold. Isn't that awesome? It was built with Egyptian gold. Where'd you get all that gold? <laughs> Let's see how they got it. This is really pretty funny. You don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 12, verses 35 through 36, listen to this. this is, these are funny verses and wonderful if you're part of the people of God. If you're an Egyptian, not so much. Um, the people of Israel had done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Egypt, one of the most powerful nations the planet had seen to the point. Israel, they're slaves. Can I have your gold, please? Okay. What about your silver? Yeah, that's fine. Just leave. How about some nice clothes? Yeah, just go. Take it. I don't know if we have ever read of other very powerful nations that were plundered verbally. Like when you think plunder, I'm thinking guys racing in on horses and swinging swords and give me everything. No, they just asked and God gave them favor. They said, okay, take it all. That may contribute a little bit to why they were chased shortly thereafter. Wait a minute, they've got our gold. Thus they plundered the Egyptians verbally. God's abundant provision, God's gift of rest, and God's specific gifting of people with abilities are all a reason for us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God as our spiritual act of worship. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 12. He says, God is so merciful and he's so good. So I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercy of God to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Live for the Lord. Don't withhold anything because his mercies are great. His love, his abundant provision should blow your mind and cause you to want to spend and be spent gladly. Paul also said that in 2 Corinthians. He said, I will most gladly spend and be spent on the souls of God's children. So I'll close this morning with the question to you. Will you most gladly spend and be spent on souls? This goes way further than writing a check. Will you be spent not only in the ways that you see fit, but as God sees fit? Seeing your gifts as not coming from within you, but from outside by the hand of God? Will you allow your hearts and your minds to be stirred to this kind of life? not just something you do once a week. Remember, the resources are in the body. There's a phrase that should become familiar around here. When a need comes up, put it before the body. You know why we put it before the body? 
because the resources are in the body. Beautiful. I'm really thankful for that. Don't turn to these scriptures, but in light of what we have seen in Exodus, listen to them closely and write them in your notes. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, and Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17 say this. Do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What do you care more about in all that? The worldly possessions or the abiding forever part? Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, who would ever do that? Every one of us is prone to it. I just want a pat on the back. I just want someone to tell me I'm doing a good job. But be careful. You can live that as a lifestyle. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. They were still helping the needy, but it was all wrong. It wasn't an act of worship. As they do in the synagogues and streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. If you want praise from others and you work really hard and you say it's an act of worship and you receive the praise from others, you've already received the reward you were looking after. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's how much not on display your work needs to be. Don't let the left hand even know what the right hand is doing. That's not a display of my own personal glory. That's a picture of worship, where our aim is the Lord's glory. Do not even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Our Heavenly Father sees in secret. Our Heavenly Father makes plans in secret. He has counsel in secret, and He rewards His people eternally. Will you spend and be spent like this? If you were Bezalel or Aholiab, would you be a little miffed that there wasn't more said about you? I made the tabernacle. Would you be miffed that more wasn't said about you if you were Bezalel or Aholiab? That there weren't any songs written about you or books named after you? Our God says that this world is passing away. When is the last time you gave thought to storing up treasures in heaven? When's the last time you gave thought to what it even means to store up treasures in heaven, much less actually store up treasures in heaven? My prayer before this sermon was even preached would be that God would give us the ability to respond to these texts in a way that's not just a flash in a pan. We don't need to respond to texts like this with a flurry of activity that fizzles quickly, but that we would respond as a people devoted to God's glory with both our hearts and our minds in every task that he sets us to and he gives us in, that we would be steadfast in truth, gladly spending and being spent, persevering, enduring, and holding loosely to the things of the world, particularly the praise of man, 
to be able to be a people who actually say, I want to do that. I want to serve wholeheartedly. I want to, and I, want to, I don't want to just do it once. I want to be able to be steadfast in it. I don't really, I don't care if people pat, my, pat me on the back. Hopefully, if you're a member of a people who are paying attention to all that God is doing, now and again, you will get, hey, good job. That's not what you do the work for. Spending and being spent gladly on the souls of God's children. Let's close by continuing to pray in that direction. Uh, Lord, um, I'm very, very humbled uh, by uh, your message this morning. I pray that we understand why we're even members of a church. I pray that we would see the, the weight and the importance of the fact that you are dwelling with your people and the bringing in of your people isn't done yet or else time would cease. I pray that we would be joyfully spent and that we would joyfully spend in the right direction. I pray that you would help us to not be consumed with our own cares and our own worldly stuff. I pray that you would help us to not try to take gifts that you have given us and use them as bartering tools or define the terms in which we will use them even though you were the one who gave them to us. Lord, you are really, really good. I'm thankful that these last few weeks we've gotten to see it in your abundant provision, in the rest that you give us, and in the fact that we're surrounded by other people who are blessed and equipped and gifted by the Lord. We all sit here very, very blessed. The greatest blessing of our faith is not just what we're able to do, but Christ. That Christ has not died just to make us able to live in a certain way, but that his righteousness is counted as ours. So you count Christ's righteousness as ours and you enable us to live in a certain way. Not so that we can earn your favor, but so that we put your glory on display. Lord, it's beautiful. Lord, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would keep these things so that our hearts and minds are both stirred. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we struggle and strive to be this people who are good stewards of his good giftings, um, we need this supper. We need this supper because it's ultimate. Uh, God's good giftings are not ultimate, as Scott has shared. Um, but by the same account, um, your fears, all the things you bring with you this morning that came with you in here, your parenting issues, your, your weary heart, your weary bodies, everything that came with you, your, your fear, your sin, your struggle that you bring is not ultimate either. Uh, there's an ultimate gift 
that we come to now and where we find our rest, and it's Jesus. So listen to Mark's account. Listen to who's giving and listen to who's receiving. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And this is what he said. Take, this is my body. Just as the bread is broken, he has given himself. So the ultimate gift is him. That's the ultimate this morning. Not you and me, not our giftings, not our hopes, not our fears, not our sin. He, his body broken, that's ultimate. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This supper is for those who are believing that this gift is ultimate. The only atonement for your sin. The only atonement is his body and blood. If you are believing that today, take and eat. Rest in nothing. Nothing but the blood. And if you're believing and his body broken and his blood poured out for many, take and drink. Would you pray with me? Father, now as we come, having received from you the ultimate gift, Jesus, believing in nothing but your body and your blood, we rest and now we bring tithe and offering for your glory and our own good. We give. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Everybody go ahead and stand up. Um, this morning you may be thinking, I wonder what kind of gift I've been given or ability I have that I'm supposed to use and maybe you're trying to figure that out. And I don't want you to lose sight of what Brad just said very clearly that you don't figure out your gifting and then figure out how you're going to use it for Jesus it's in that relationship with Christ that you come into the fullness of who you are as a member of a people. And God is very merciful and graceful to do that for us. I love corporate worship. I love that we get to gather here on Sunday mornings and see this in motion and see this in play every week. There's different people who preach. There's different people who lead worship. There's different guys who do the offering stuff. There's different guys who prepare the elements. There's all these different things. There's different people serving in the ministry week or in the nursery week to week with the children. It's beautiful. It's this beautiful picture of the, it reminds me of perichoresis, this dance that we're caught up in because of God's amazing goodness. I encourage y'all to not leave here and lose sight of that. Let's pray. Lord, you're very, very good to us. We thank you for our time this morning. Pray that you would have us Leave and live lives for your glory. That it would be on our minds and on our hearts on how can we spend to be spent in a way that shows the rest of the world how wonderful our God is. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good afternoon.